I'm excited to uh, I'm excited to speak this morning. It's always it's always a privilege for me to dive into a passage of scripture and study, and I feel like it's so edifying for me personally. And I hope that I'm able to pass on even just a little bit of what of what I've learned and how God what God has stirred in my heart throughout the week to you this morning. You might recall that before Easter we were in a series on the Book of John. And then we had Easter, and then we took a little break looking at Joshua. Well, we're going to come back to the book of John starting today, and this is going to take us right through the summer. So June, July, and August. And I'm excited about that. I love studying Jesus. I love studying the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. And uh, we got three more months, so I think we're actually going to be able to work our way through the whole book of John, which is actually a pretty rare feat. Usually, you get a couple chapters in, and then you move on to something else. So we're actually going to just camp here and keep learning about Jesus. And so... Uh, the last sermon that was preached was John chapter 6, so we're just going to pick up where we left off last time, and we're going to jump into John chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John 7, and we're going we're gonna to start uh, working our way through, through this. So John chapter 7, I think I've got it up there. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So in John, chapter 7, 8, and 9, three whole chapters, they all take place in one setting. They all take place at the same time. It is during a festival, a famous festival, the Festival of Tabernacles. So everything that you read, all the conversations that are taking place, all the miracles that are happening, all the things that Jesus says, they all happen within the context of this festival. And so we're going to take some time this morning to immerse ourselves in this festival because as we understand uh, why, what they were celebrating and why they were celebrating, it will actually bring out even more uh, meaning and significance to some of the, the important things that Jesus said uh, during this time. So there's three main festivals that the Jewish people celebrated. And they're actually, their calendar year actually revolved around these festivals. They were really big deals for the Jewish people. Passover we know about, Pentecost we've heard about, and then there's this uh, festival of tabernacles. The festival of tabernacle is actually... Uh, the most famous one, and the one that they celebrated the hardest. They loved this one. It was by far their favorite. The Festival of Tabernacle happened at the end of September, beginning of October. It was always the end of harvest season. And so people were working their land really hard. It was a good harvest, and then they would stop working, and they would take a week off and celebrate uh, the Festival of Tabernacle. And it was a celebration of God's provisions for the year as well as God's provisions for them as a people group. And it was their favorite one. And we're not just talking one day or one evening. They would take a whole week off. The festival lasted eight days. Eight days of no work. Eight days of partying and celebration. They really knew how to live it up then. So pilgrims would come from all over Judea and Galilee and, and even other areas, and they would ascend on Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of tabernacle. So let me tell you a few things about this festival. Feast of Tabernacle, otherwise known as the Feast of Booths. I was in Israel uh, over 10 years ago, actually at this very time, and I remember seeing this. People would build booths 
outside dwellings in their house, or else they would sleep in tents, which is why it's called the Festival of Booths, or they would also call those things tabernacles. And people would actually leave their inside dwelling, and they would live in the booths all week long. And they would sleep in the booths during the day, and then they would party, and they would celebrate at night. And you might wonder, what in the world would this represent? They are remembering back to the Exodus. You remember the Hebrew people, they were in Egypt, and then God rescued them out of Egypt. And they were making their way to the promised land, and they spent 40 years in the desert. And in the desert, God provided for them, provided everything for them. Food and water and, um, and guidance and everything that they need, protection. And while they were in the desert, what did they sleep in? They slept in tents or booths. And so every festival of tabernacle, and God actually implements this. He, sells, he tells the Hebrew people in Leviticus, I want you to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. I want you to sleep in booths as a reminder of, of how I provided for you, of how I cared for you in the past. And so it's not something that they forget, that they're constantly remembering God's provision and God's care for them uh, through the Exodus. So as well as looking backwards at God's provisions, God, uh, the people also focused on the present. They had a good harvest, and they celebrated that God took care of them in the past, but was continuing to take care of them in the present. And then in addition to looking backwards and present, the festival also looked ahead. It looked to a future time when all the nations would be gathered to celebrate the festival with the Jewish people, so that everyone could acknowledge that God is the provider and the sustainer. And so we see this in Zechariah chapter 14. Here's a prophecy about the future. And it says this, Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. So the people were waiting. They were anticipating a time when it would not only be the Jews celebrating God's provisions, but all people. There's going to be a time where there's this, where there's this breakdown uh, between um, Jews and Gentiles, and all people will be one. And they were waiting for that. They were anticipating this. There's two really significant daily ceremonies that happened every day at the Festival of Tabernacles. There was a water ceremony, and there was a lighting of the lamps. And so I'm going to walk us through these. Every morning, there would be a procession of priests, and they would go from the temple, and they'd walk through the city of Jerusalem down to uh, a pool called the Pool of Siloam. And the pool was a place where there was fresh water. And the priests would, they would have two jugs and they would take the water, two silver jugs, and they'd fill up the water and then they'd walk back up to the temple. And this was a great celebration. All the pilgrims would follow them. They would sing. They would dance. Um, they would, and this, they would sing this, um, this uh, passage from Isaiah over and over again. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So this great ceremony of grabbing the water from the Pool of Siloam, going back up to the temple, and then the priests, they would take a jug of water from the Pool of Siloam, and they would take a jug of wine, and they'd pour it on the altar. And it was an act of prayer and an act of celebration. It was an expression of dependence on God to say, would you bless, would you bless us as a people? Would you bless our land? Um, water had so much significance back then. Uh, I want to show a picture one over here. Uh, so yeah, so here's, you can kind of see the route they would take from the temple and they'd walk all the way through Jerusalem and they'd go down to the Pool of Siloam and walk back. And again, people would be cheering and celebrating and singing and watching the priests do this and they'd go back to the temple and they would pour on the altar uh, these, gold, these golden cups. Uh, next picture, please. So why the Pool of Siloam? 
This is actually a recent excavation site, 2004. They didn't know that this had existed until they were digging up a sewer line and they actually found this in Jerusalem. And uh, there's, a fresh, there's a fresh water spring coming out of there. And so the people would go down and uh, water, water is just so significant back then. Um, there's three main ways of getting, of getting water uh, back in the land of Israel at that time. You could get a cistern and collect rain, but obviously you're dependent on it for, on rain for, uh, to get water. You could dig a well, which was more reliable, but eventually the water would run out or you're not quite sure what you're getting. And the most prized way of getting water back then was to find an underground spring because it was fresh and it was always flowing, and it was always bubbling out of the ground. It was the best kind of water, and that was the pool of Siloam. And so the priest would go down there, and, it, and the, the water, it represented God's provisions, God's care upon his people. On the last great day of the feast, uh, the water rite reached its climax. So on day seven, the, the priests, they would circle the altar seven times, and then they would pour the water on. And the people would yell out sh or shout out in unison, Hosanna, which means save us now. You know, we've seen in the early chapters of John how symbolic water is. Um, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, right? She's down and out. She's at the low, uh, the, the low cast. And Jesus offers her the greatest gift of all. What does he offer her? He offers her living water. Water Water represents life. It represents satisfaction. It represents uh, meaning. It represents the essentials for living well. It's not just about material thirst. It's about spiritual thirst. And so all of these images, they're so richly described throughout all of the scriptures. And so people were not just celebrating spring water. That water represented life for them. It represented so much for them. So I've laid out the context for you. John chapter 7, verse 37. I want you to hear these words and I want you to keep in mind all that I've just explained to you in the midst of this festival and what's going on and all of its symbolic meaning and all the people that would have been there. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, so this is day 7 when they're circling the altar seven times, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Can you imagine how that would have sounded? Can you imagine how people would have heard that in that setting? Verse 39, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is a prophet. Others said he is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah possibly come from Galilee? It's, it's just, when you think about the significance of what is going on at this festival, and on day seven, and all that water represents, and Jesus has the, has the, the courage and the audacity to stand up there and say, If you are thirsty, come to me and have a drink. It's absolutely incredible. Um, it's as the priests were pouring water as an appeal to the creator God to provide water for the people. It's as if Jesus stands up there and he answers their prayer and he says, I am the answer to your prayer. I am here. What a radical statement that is. Jesus was claiming to be none other than the creator himself. Some recognize that authority and they clearly say he must be the Messiah. 
And others were absolutely incensed. They wanted to seize him and have him stoned for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. And this is what so much of John chapter 7, 8, and 9 are about. There's these ongoing conversations between Jewish leaders and disciples and pilgrims. And everyone's asking, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Is he really the Messiah? Is he crazy? Who, who is this guy? What is going on? Those who believe, they choose to follow him. Those who don't believe, they want to kill him. Jesus was a really polarizing figure. He said radical things at radical time. He didn't do safe things. He didn't say safe things. It was in your face. And you were, you were forced to make a decision. Is this guy for real or is he not? Do I believe him or do I want to kill him? Today we live in a culture and a society that is happy to say Jesus was a good man. Jesus is a moral teacher. He's a great example. Yeah, he could have been a prophet. Maybe he said some interesting things. But this whole concept of, of him being God or the Son of God or miracles or resurrection from the dead, that's just stuff the church made up. I would say that the majority of people that I have conversations with about faith kind of land in that camp where they appreciate Jesus, but it doesn't go beyond um, him just being a good guy or a moral teacher. And I think a lot of Canadians believe this today. The reality is, if we look at the scriptures, the scriptures don't give us any room to think that way at all. We are left with a choice. Either Jesus is who he said he was, or he's a crazy man. Because scenes like this one, where Jesus so radically and pointedly proclaim that he is the new source of life, that he is the source of salvation. Because of statements like this, we don't really have the option to, to find a middle ground. Yes, I love Jesus, but I'm not really going to do any of the of the, the miracle resurrection discipleship stuff. We don't really have that option. I love what Timothy Keller says here. He says, Jesus cannot be liked. His claims make us either kill him or crown him. And so the scriptures are clear as we read through them. There isn't a middle ground. Lukewarm, complacent Christianity just doesn't really have a place. It's either you are in, either you're really following Jesus, or you don't believe him for what he says about himself. Either he's the Messiah, the Son of God, or he's not. Either he's the King and Lord of our lives, or he's not. Either he satisfies our thirsty souls, or he doesn't. Jesus came to give us this living water. It is the best kind of water. It is the bubbling up spring kind of water. One of my favorite passages in all of the scriptures, uh, the people asked to Jesus in John chapter 10, Jesus, why have you come? What's your purpose here? And his answer is this in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you would have life and life abundantly. Isn't that great? Why did Jesus come? He didn't come to give us a bunch of rules that we have to follow or kind of damper our life or he didn't even come to set up a religion. What did he come for? He came to give us life, life abundantly. This is what Jesus is about. And this is what this living water represents. It's life, a life alive through the Holy Spirit. The best kind of life, real spiritual satisfaction. Mike, the late Mike Iaconelli, a great uh, youth worker, said this, most people believe that following Jesus is all about living right. Not true. Following Jesus is about living fully. It's about being fully alive. It's about being fully human. It's about having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life and walking in that power and in that presence of God. Are you living fully? Is Jesus the source of your life for meaning and purpose and value and acceptance? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Is he the one quenching your thirst? These are the questions that we are forced to ask when we encounter this text. 
And these are the questions that Jesus asked the people 2,000 years ago at the Festival of Booths. Are you thirsty? If you're thirsty, come to me and have a drink. This, uh, this question is just as relevant today as it was back then. Okay, well, that's the first daily celebration. There's a second daily celebration that happened during the festival. In the morning, they would do the water uh, ceremony, and every night there would be a lighting of the lamps. And so they would sleep during the day, they would party all night, and they would do the water ceremony in the morning, and they'd go back to sleep. So here's what would happen at night. They would party with music, there would be parades, entertainment, lots of people would have individual torches, and then they would rest during the day in their tent. The night was a big deal because here's what happened. There was four giant candles, not little candles, 75-foot giant candelabras, four of them in the courtyard of the temple, and they were higher than the walls, and they would light the candles every single night for seven days, and there would be like a huge bonfire coming out of these candles, and it would light up all of Jerusalem, and so at night, there would just be this light glowing in Jerusalem. They were 75 feet high. There was four bowls, it would take 16 youth to climb up a ladder with a giant bowl of oil to pour it in there. And then they'd light the wick and, the, and the, the fire would go all night long. And the effect was that it would just light up all of Jerusalem. Eyewitness historian records actually say that it was bright enough to light up every courtyard in Jerusalem, transforming the temple into a light of the world. I think I have some pictures there. Yeah. So that, these are some pictures that they try to capture what it may or may not have looked like. Well, would have looked like. So you can see the candelabras, there's four of them. They're higher than the temple. And it would have just been, I mean, just think, there would have been a huge fire. And it would have offered so much light throughout, uh, throughout Jerusalem. So why did they do this? Again, it points back to the Exodus. How did God lead his people through the desert? Through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God was represented in the fire, in the light, and he was guiding them. And light has so much symbolic meaning for the Jewish people. Light really did represent a God in so many different ways. And so while they were lighting the candles, people would sing and they would rejoice and they would quote scripture. They'd quote Psalms. Here's some of the Psalms, just so you get a sense of the meaning of light. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 36. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Isaiah 2.5. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You see, for the, the Jewish people celebrating this festival, God was represented in the light. He was the one that lit up, um, lit up their life, gave them guidance, gave them counsel, gave them provision. He was a symbol of God's revelation to his people. Even more than that, we know the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for somebody to come and save them and redeem them and to draw all the other nations to the living God. And this Messiah figure, through the scriptures, was actually represented by light. Isaiah 9.2 The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. So Isaiah is prophesying for the future. Speaking about the Messiah here, Isaiah 49, 6. He says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribe of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So these are both messianic prophecies. The Jewish people knew these well. They understood that 
um, light would be associated with this future Messiah, this, this, this promised Savior for Israel. And so they had all of this in their mind as they were celebrating, as they were recognizing God as being the representative of light. Uh, God's provision and care and guidance and the promise of the future Messiah all wrapped up in this symbolic, in the symbolic nature of light. And so, again, I want you to picture this. Uh, in the midst of people celebrating, in the midst of people singing and quoting these psalms, in the midst of people anticipating a Messiah figure to come and to save them and to draw the other nations in, in the midst of understanding that light represents God's care and faithfulness and provisions, John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus stands up. And what does he say? He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this is already a profound statement, not knowing the context, but now that you know the context, you can, I hope you can just sense how significant this would have sounded. I picture Jesus doing this at the temple with the four bonfire, the four candles glowing, and Jesus standing there and saying, all that you, all that you think God is about, all, all the symbolic nature of the light, all that you have been waiting for and, and are anticipating, I'm here. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Imagine how that would have sounded to the people. Imagine what would have been going through their minds at that time. More than any of these festival images, Jesus is the true light. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies. He shines light on both Jew, on all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile, to lead the way. And when we choose to follow Jesus, we are choosing to follow the light. And we are rescued from darkness. That just as God guided the Hebrews through the darkness of the desert, Jesus guides us through uh, life. But there's a prerequisite, right? There are some strings attached. We actually have to choose to follow him. This is a choice we have to make to follow Jesus. Throughout the book of John, we see these words, uh, believe and follow. They're virtually the same. To believe in Jesus means to follow Jesus uh, physically, spiritually, emotionally. It's not just an intellectual statement of belief. It's not just accepting a set of doctrine statements. It's not just thinking that something is true. It's actually choosing to follow a person. Jesus says, follow me. Just like the Hebrew people back in the desert. If the pillar of fire was moving, the Hebrew people had to move with it. And if they didn't, they'd be left behind and they'd be left in the dark. And that's the same image that Jesus is conjuring up here. Whoever follows me stays in the light. But if you don't, you will continue within your darkness. And the same goes for Jesus. Being a Christian is about following Jesus. That's why throughout the scriptures, we, we see so many terms that, that uh, talk about this. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to fix our thoughts on Jesus. We need to set our mind on heavenly things. Pick up your cross and follow me. These are all images, all, it's all language about Following a person, following Jesus. They all point to an active life of following Jesus, who is our light and who is our guide. Are you following Jesus? That's the question that I think Jesus is asking. He is the light. At the festival, he challenges the people Will you follow me? Will you leave the darkness behind? Will you become my disciple? And this question Jesus is still asking us today. 
It's just as relevant today as it was back then. Will you follow me? Will you follow the light? Will you leave the darkness behind? When we follow Jesus, we focus on the light and the darkness is exposed and it goes away. It's a profound and amazing statement. I am the light of the world. And set within the context of the lighting of the lamps, you can just, you can just hear how, how this would have sounded for the people. And again, if you go back and read through John chapter 7, 8, and 9, many believe in Jesus and many don't. Many are confused. They want to get hung up on, on, um, they want to get hung up on conversations that don't actually lead anywhere. And we are forced, as we read through John 7, 8, 9, to ask ourselves the question, what do we believe about Jesus? Is he truly the Son of God, the Messiah? Is he the light of the world? Is he the fulfillment of these prophecies? I say yes. The scriptures say yes. And I trust the scriptures and I trust Jesus. And this is true in my life. I felt it and I know it. And so Jesus is asking us this question, what do you believe? Are you going to follow me? So what I've tried to do this morning is to provide a setting in which Jesus makes these two very powerful statements. What you'll find in John chapter 9 is Jesus actually gives evidence to the fact that he is the light of the world by healing a blind man. And the whole chapter 9 is about the healing of a blind man. Um, and it's not random that it, that it ends up there. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then he gives light to the blind. Which again is fulfillment of prophecies and it's further evidence that Jesus is who he said he was. We don't have time to get into that now. But that kind of gives you a bit of a, a picture of John chapter 7, 8, and 9 and the significant things that are in there. So when we understand um, the setting of the festival of booze, uh, the, the impact of what Jesus is offering, the living water and the, the light of the world, it, it is evident. These are radical statements Jesus was being really clear about who he is, what he came to do, what he came to fulfill, and what he came to offer us. So we don't celebrate the festival anymore. We don't build tents and sleep outside, although I think that would be fun. Um, and it would be great to see the 75-foot candles. But we don't do that anymore. Instead, we follow Jesus. Because Jesus is actually the fulfillment. He has fulfilled the meaning of, of this festival. So we don't need to celebrate it anymore. Instead, we follow Jesus and we celebrate Jesus. He is the one that provides us with living water. He is the one that satisfies our thirsty souls. He is the one that sheds light on our life and gives us guidance and counsel. He's the one that fills us with his spirit and gives us what we so need that we're so hungry and thirsty for. And all that we are required to do is to believe and to follow to attach ourselves to him and become his disciple. And these promises will be true in our life. And so today, we don't celebrate festivals like the Jews, but we have our own rituals. It's interesting. Uh, humans are interesting people. We all have rituals. Every culture, every society has rituals. And rituals give meaning to things that are really, really important to us. They give uh, rich images to things that matter deeply to people. Communion is one of those rituals. Since the very beginning, the church has celebrated communion, and this has been incredibly symbolic of what is so core to what it means to follow Jesus. We take the bread, or in this case, the gluten-free cracker, and we recognize that Jesus, Jesus gave his body for us. He lived a life of an example for us, and he gave his body for us. And then we take this cup, this juice, 
and it represents Jesus' blood. And we are reminded that Jesus spilt his blood for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And that we live in a new covenant with him by his spirit because of what he has done for us on the cross. And so every month we do this as a way to remind ourselves about what is most important, about what is most core, about uh, these things that we believe so deeply that affect our lives so much. Jesus came to offer his life so that in turn we could have life. He came to offer his life so that we could have light. That we could have hope and meaning and purpose and forgiveness. And so this ritual, this celebration, it helps us remember what is most important, what is most core. So when we have chosen to follow Jesus with our lives, um, we are reminded of what he's done for us and all, that he, all of his great provisions for us. And so um, I'm going to invite the band to come on up and uh, play some music in the background. And we're going to uh, participate in communion. Before we do that, let me pray. And I, let's just take some time to be quiet. Maybe just reflect on these two statements and what they might mean for you and visualize it. Visualize these statements uh, within the context, within the setting that I have uh, laid out for you. So let's just be quiet and then um, we'll, we'll get into the elements. Jesus, it's hard, it's hard to comprehend the significance of these statements. But from what little we do understand, God, we are so grateful, Jesus, that you are the revelation of God. That you are the one who quenches our thirst. You are the living water. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you abide in us and that you live within us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are light of the world. And that by following you, we will not be in darkness. Jesus, we thank you for your life and for your death and resurrection and the life that we live now because of that. A new life. Life by your spirit. And we thank you, Lord. And as we participate around this table, God, we remember what you've done for us and we just say thank you. Thank you for the way you lived and the things you taught. Thank you, Lord, for the life you gave to us the death you died, and the resurrection that took place, that we might have new life in you. So we give you praise, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.